The Bible. Just what is the Bible? What sort of book is it? Why do we call it Scripture? And how and why does having a personal relationship with God through Jesus, which is what we all think Christianity is about, how does it all depend and revolve around this ancient text that's written in languages that many of us don't understand? That's our theme in today's episode of Two Ways News. Hello, I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Great to have you with us again. Philip's away this week at launch conference, and I'm sure we'll hear about that from him when he's back. And so we have someone from the substitutes bench this week, but what a substitute. It's not really Doug Walters coming on as the partnership breaking bowler. It's someone even better than that. It's Mark Thompson from Moore College. Hello, Mark. Hi, Tony. What a combination. <laughs> Doug Waters. Nobody has ever thought about that. I, just, I think Jeff Thompson when I think of myself. So that's, Oh, more yeah, of a Jeff Thompson than a Doug yeah, Walters. Than a Doug Walters, yeah. These are references that probably 80% of our listenership doesn't really know. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I want to talk to you about your new book, mm -hmm. which is about Scripture. It's called The Doctrine of Scripture and Introduction. But before we get on to your book, I'd like to talk just a little bit about Moore College and just hear what's happening. Uh, many of our listeners are very keen supporters of Moore College, and it's great to hear what's, what's going on here. A general question to start with, my sense over the past five, six, seven years, talking to people looking at some numbers, reading various things, is that theological education in general has been in a bit of a tough spot. Numbers at colleges have been declining. Numbers at Moore have been declining. Just where are things at, especially in terms of Moore College at the moment? Is it a tough time? Is it a good time? Well, um, a couple of years ago now, I went for a trip to visit theological colleges around the world and look at evangelical theological colleges. One of the things that struck me was that there was a uniform right across the world. I, I went to America and England and Australia, just those places. But in each of those places, theological colleges were struggling. Um, they were struggling because of the cultural shift. They were struggling because of the availability of online courses and new modes of delivery were undermining traditional ways of doing theological education. Um, and because there was a general um, lack of appreciation of the importance of theological education, a kind of disenchantment with theological education that produced intellectuals rather than people who can relate to people. And that was right across the board. In Australia, um, um, I keep hearing from... Uh, people who talk to me, not heads of other colleges don't often tell me how well they're doing. Uh, <laughs> we're all quite insular like that, I think. But anyway, they, when I've spoken to people, there is a general concern about the state of theological education in Australia. A couple of years ago, we had a dip in numbers. Uh, uh, over a three-year period, our numbers dropped by about 20 intake, 20 to 30 people intake each year. Uh, that was a little concerning. But over the last three years, we've had very good numbers. And this year, we will have a very large first year. I think we're going to have something in the vicinity of 85 new faces uh, tomorrow at our orientation day. So we're quite excited. And the college is buoyant. Um, our faculty is excited and united. And uh, it, it's a great place to be at the moment. And the atmosphere is really positive. That's really encouraging to hear. A number of us have been praying for more college. Many people around Sydney pray for more college and for its strength and for people to be raised up for the gospel and to come to college and to hear that God's answering those prayers and that there's a, 
uh, a growth again is wonderful to hear. As the year starts, what kind of things are you excited about? Like it's starting tomorrow, you said, Welcome yes. Day. Uh, what are you excited about as the year uh, gets going? Well, I should say first, I'm very grateful for the prayers of people. Uh, we have women praying. Uh, we have a women's prayer group, our prayer support group. We have men praying for more. We have people who pray in their private prayer times for the college, and we're very grateful. We're very dependent upon God for all that we do at college, so thank you very much for that. What am I excited about this year? We've we've been tinkering with our program. Um, every year we play with uh, the program to incrementally improve it, and this year is going to see yet another change, um, so that's good. It's not that there was anything wrong with the old thing. We just keep working on uh, doing things better. And so I'm excited about some of those changes. We've got new members of our faculty. Uh, Tom Habib and Susan Ahn have both joined us this year. And uh, I'm excited about both of them. I've met with them just in the last half an hour or so. And it's great to see them here. Uh, And they'll contribute well to the faculty, I'm sure. So that's exciting. The large number of students is exciting. I think once all the students are back in a couple of weeks' time, there'll be a real buzz. The college will feel very full, I'm sure. So uh, there's lots of exciting things, I think, happening at the moment. The opportunities to reach into new parts of the world, uh, programs where um, pastors are being trained using some of our um, correspondence and online resources, that work is expanding, work into marginalised areas in Sydney and amongst Indigenous people is expanding. There There are a number of arms that are all growing at the same time so it's a it's an exciting and slightly daunting prospect to see what's happening at the moment see what the lord's doing that's great to hear i got the most recent more college um sort of bulletin more matters Mm -hmm. thing recently and it and it was really great to see the sort of global mission focus that came out in that and Mm. the whole purpose of theological education is to is to be part of the mission of God in the world, to be part of what God's doing through Christ to reach the nations, to reach Australia, to reach Sydney, to reach everywhere. Uh, and it's fantastic that, that more is part of that. It's really a danger. It's a danger that can come when we are too focused on ourselves. So keeping our vision clear that this is about a global mission, that's about taking Jesus to the world, um, I think that's very important for us to keep doing. It certainly is. And that's perhaps a nice transition to talking about your book because... Your book is about Jesus and mm-hmm. about the gospel, which is not what you'd immediately think of when you think of a book about the Bible and Scripture and the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, it starts with Jesus, and not every book on the Bible and the nature of the Bible that I've read, in fact, most don't start there. Why did you start there with, with Jesus? Well, it's, it's interesting. My own experience is um, coming up against people who say that they're Christian and they follow Jesus, but they don't really think much about the Bible. And they've separated out Jesus and the Bible. Like you, I've read uh, many books about the Bible where it's almost where Jesus seems to be tangential. He's on the periphery. It, it, it's as if the Bible operates in its own little world and Jesus operates in his. And you can see why people can say, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, but I don't follow the Bible. I wanted to say, no, the reason I take the Bible seriously, the reason I engage with it the way I do, spend time studying it the way I do, is because I'm following Jesus. Uh, I am a disciple of Jesus. Jesus treated the Old Testament this way. He commissioned the New Testament. I want to treat the Bible the way Jesus does. And that's also surely because the central theme of the Bible is not just a set of religious ideas or philosophies, mm. the central 
character and direction and drive of the Bible is an historical reality, Jesus Christ himself, the crucified and risen Jesus. Yeah, he's not just at the centre of a doctrine of Scripture, he's at the centre of the teaching of Scripture itself. So you want to see if Jesus is going to be honoured as the one in that central place, then he needs to be central in your doctrine of Scripture. And so one of the things I very much wanted to do in the book was to make sure that at every point we anchored what we were saying about the Bible in Jesus' own life and words. Because Jesus has a, Jesus has a remarkable amount of things to say about the Bible, about the Scriptures, the Old Testament, the Word of God. Uh, and once you look at that and realise he didn't just come against that backdrop, he interacted with it and called us to pay attention to it. It became obvious that's the way to to pan out this book, to plan out the book from Jesus to every aspect of what the Bible is. Now, I've jumped straight into the, the beginning of the book, and we'll, we'll talk our way through the main ideas of the book to give people a sense of what it's about and encourage them to go and grab a copy. But I forgot to ask that initial early first basic question. Why did you write this book? Who's this book for? What sort of book is it? Well, it's it's a book that's designed for people who love the Bible and use the Bible, but don't haven't really thought much about what the Bible is. And they know that Jesus is, they've learnt of Jesus from the Bible, but actually to think about the relationship between Jesus and the Bible more carefully. Um, if people are seeking to undermine our confidence in the Bible, and that's been that's been the Satan's strategy since the garden, um, and it's increasingly um, being heard in, you know, the new atheists were people who were denying that we needed to pay any attention to the Bible. Um, I've heard Christian leaders in this country say about how we've now moved on from what the Bible writers have said. When you have that kind of thing being said, having some confidence about what this is that I've got in my hands and why I should still pay attention to it seems to be an important thing. So I want to encourage Christians. That's what it's there for. It's not really a book for non-Christians. It's a book for Christians old and new, um, those who are still trying to work out what they think about the Bible and those who want to be encouraged again about what they think about the Bible. Fantastic. And so as we were saying, it starts with Jesus and Jesus' attitude to the Bible, and then the book moves to talking about God, from Jesus to the God who Jesus reveals to us, and how God is the kind of God who might produce a Bible, if I can put it in that way. What is it about God himself that ends up coming about that we have a Bible? Yes, well, the movement is because Jesus himself brings us to the Father, brings us to God, and says um, that uh, draws us into that relationship he has with the Father where we can call God Father. So to move from Jesus to the God uh, that we know because Jesus has come seems a natural move to make. Then we, as we think about God, that God is not a solitary monad as if uh, he uh, in, lives in splendid isolation, but our God is relational at his core. And so relationship and communication in that sense of relating is in the very heart of who God is. And so, therefore, what we see in the Bible as God relating to us is a reflection of who God really is in himself. He's a relating God. He's a communicative God. Um, a number of modern theologians even talk about him being his communicative being. And that's they mean more than just words. They mean that he gives himself. And so uh, then we can think about, okay, well, if that is what God is like, 
then how should we understand this phenomenon called the Bible in the light of who God is? The God who addresses himself to others, addresses himself to us in words that we can understand, and those words are recorded for us in Scripture. I love the way in, uh, in that chapter you bring out that nothing about what we know of God and love of God as we relate to him, as we serve him, as we worship him, none of it is possible. None of it makes any sense. He can't be the God we know personally and through Jesus if he's not a speaking God. It's right at the center of who he is and what he does. Yes, it's really fascinating, isn't it, that the Bible begins with God speaking in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And it ends with God speaking, behold, I'm coming soon. So the speaking God's at sort of the bookends of the Bible. And at every moment in the, in the unfolding story of the Bible where there is a, a movement forward, God speaking is at the center of it. God calling Abraham, God calling out Moses, God's promise to David, God's word through the prophets, and finally his last final word in his son. So God speaks, and out of his speech comes a revelation to us, a communication with us, and eventually comes a Bible. And in the next kind of chapter of the book, you tease out that process or that connection. How do we get from a God who speaks to a book that we're holding in our hand called the ESV or something? Oh, yes. Uh, it, it, it's interesting because that transition from spoken word to written words um, critically important. Um, and it is God who makes that transition himself. It's God who causes his word to be written at Mount Sinai. He gives Moses the two tablets. He gets he calls on Moses to, to write the things that he's been saying uh, in the book of the law. And it's God who says to Joshua, I think this is a fascinating verse in Joshua 1, where Joshua is taking over from Moses and God promises, don't worry, I'll be with you wherever you are, and then says to him, make sure you pay attention to this book of the law. And so God being with him is not an alternative to paying attention to the book of the law. The God who is going to be with him encourages him to do that and to uh, observe it and, you'll, and keep your path straight. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? I haven't considered that. I'll be with you. Is the I will be with you not just I will be with you in the pillar of cloud, I'll be with you in all these, but mm. I'll be with you in this in these words, I'll be with you as I speak to you. Yes. I, I remember once visiting somebody who, with a group of students from Moore College who uh, said to us, oh, I didn't invite you to come. You guys have got the word, but we've got God's presence with us. And it's passages like Joshua 1 that say that's really an odd bifurcation. That's that's a separation that the Bible itself doesn't make. You don't have the Bible in your hands somehow behind God's back. But God is present as his word is read. And we're hearing God addressing us um, as we read the Bible. So making sure that we understand that you don't separate out God's presence from God's word is really an important uh, thing to understand early on. And I think um, Joshua is very helpful. It's a strong theme in the Old Testament and the Bible generally too, isn't it? Mm. We don't relate to God through an image. We don't relate to God through a, a mystical experience or some other form. We're not like the prophets of Baal who are desperately trying to call him down through their religious ceremonies. We, yeah. we relate to God simply because he speaks to us. And it's, it is weird, and it's almost like you feel like it's... I'm not sure the God you're talking about is the God I know. If you're saying that we relate to his presence, but you have the word... 
it's through the word and really only through the word that God comes to us and reveals himself yes. to us. And, and God's spirit is involved in the production of that word. And the way in which the spirit is involved in the lives of the Bible writers, but also in the lives of us as those who read. So it's not as if you detach the spirit of God from the word of God either. Um, and that's an important thing in, uh, uh, to remember today, I think. And so I, I've always been struck by that verse near the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. Isn't this is the person to whom I'll look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. So the person that God's relating to is the person who takes his word seriously. And it, we know that from human relations. I can't be taking you seriously if I'm not taking your word seriously. You know, I just ignore the things that you say. I'm not taking you seriously as a person. If God is a speaking God, then we're not taking God seriously if we're not taking seriously what he says. You spoke then about the relationship between God, God's spirit, who causes scripture to, mm. causes the words to be communicated, who works in us to understand them. What is the relationship between the human authors of scripture, like what they did, their mind, mm -hmm. their culture, the culture they wrote in, the language they wrote in, all those human factors of them personally and, and where they were themselves situated, and God inspiring and causing these words to be written as words that are, are true for us, are, are God's own words. What's the relationship between those well, two things? Well, we, I think we need to take a step back and say, that how does God operate in his world generally? And God can intervene in his world directly, and there's nothing to prevent God from doing that. God is able to do that. God very often, more generally, operates through means. So the way I heard the gospel was somebody shared the gospel with me. So uh, that person was used by God to, to uh, communicate, communicate to me my need of salvation and what Jesus had done for me. Now, that person freely shared uh, what they had learned and uh, their personality came through in the way in which they spoke and they spoke in Australian English to me because it was Australian who shared the gospel with me, uh, all of those sorts of things, and yet God was at work. And so if you ask me who it was who converted me, it was God who converted me, but he used that person to do it. Now, when we come to the scripture, God is not separate from the lives of people. He's not separate from his world. He's deeply engaged in his world. So Moses and Paul and the gospel writers are all people who God is deeply involved with. And so when they come to write... They creatively and consciously and with their background and personality um, write what they, uh, they, what they know God's people need to hear, and yet the end product is exactly what God wants us to hear. So God hasn't sort of bypassed their brains or their creativity or their background. Each of those are important elements in the human contribution to the scriptures. So compare the writings of the Apostle Paul and the writings of the Apostle Peter, and you can see different personality differences coming through. And they supplement each other. Um, four Gospels where people um, with different ways of compiling the Gospels, two different eyewitnesses, Matthew and John, and they notice different things. And their noticing of different things and their bringing of their personalities to bear adds a richness to our understanding of all that went on when Jesus came on earth. You spoke then about the different authors, the part that they play, and how God, in the end, 
causes those thoughts, those words, those things they've written down to be what he wants to communicate. One of the really interesting sections of the book, so as you move from how God speaks to how we actually get a Bible and what sort of thing the Bible is, uh, you dig into this whole question of inspiration and whether it's kind of, if I can put it this way, whether it's sort of the general vibe of Scripture that's inspired, you know, so long as a message gets got somehow, it's kind of that's what God intends, or whether the actual words themselves, each individual word that was written down, is exactly what God intended to be written down. It's the question of, I guess, what's called, you call verbal inspiration, mm. traditionally called verbal inspiration. Can you talk to us about that? Is, is it important to believe that every word is inspired, or is it more important that the overall meaning and intent is inspired well it's it's interesting when the bible itself uses the language of inspiration which is only at one spot really it doesn't speak about the inspiration of the writers and it doesn't speak about the inspiration of their thoughts the thing that is inspired is the final product it's all scripture is god breathed that's so 2 Timothy 3 right yeah that's 2 Timothy 3 so there's the um it's the end result that is inspired so whatever means God uses, and he uses a variety of means. So Luke's compiling all the information he can get from a variety of people. John's recalling what he saw when he walked with Jesus. There are different ways of, um, of producing a gospel. And yet at the end, what is produced is exactly what God wants us to have. So it's the final result that is inspired. Now, what is inspired? It's not just some sort of ethereal meaning behind the text. It's not one step away from the text. It's all scripture that is inspired. When I was a, a student at Moore College, uh, my Old Testament lecturer, Bill Dumbrell, I remember him taking me aside one day and saying, unless you have verbal inspiration, you can't do biblical theology. And what he meant by that was the, the form of the words is important. How you see connections between different parts of the Old Testament and the New Testament based on the kind of language that is being used, well, you can't do that if that language is incidental or accidental and the real thing that's inspired is something behind it. This is a really fascinating subject, and it's pressing a whole set of buttons for me, Mark. I, have I, to I say. can see as I'm watching you. <laughs> because it means that the words of the Bible, and especially as we, you know, we're talking about the words that were originally produced in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, it's those words that are Scripture, and that every one of those words and how those words are put down there, which words are chosen and so on, is significant because that's what God caused to be written. And it means that as we translate, as we read in English, as we study, as we preach, we need to attend really carefully to the words that are there mm. uh, and not try to sort of smooth everything out and perhaps make it simpler or easier. Um, and so, for example, from my point of view, in English translation, for example, I think if there's a causative conjunction, if there's a therefore between two verses, and that's what's there in the text that God has inspired... We shouldn't produce a Bible that deletes that causal connection because it flows a bit better in English and we feel like it's easier to read. Yes. Now, you might actually find different ways of signalling that causal connection. Correct. Right. So you might not have to use the word therefore, for instance. Yes. But if that causal connection is missing, God gave us that word to signal that causal connection. I think that's critically important. It's interesting that human language... 
that God addresses Adam and Eve and obviously uses human language to address them. So God's not afraid of human language um, and God is able to use human language. And one of the features of human language is it's translatable. So we can actually translate. But translations can either be good or bad and so they have to be weighed and they have to be weighed against the original. And so that's why uh, we have, that's why at colleges you have people spending all the time they do learning Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic because then they can test what is being translated against the original. And most of the time, for most of the major translations that we have, what we have are good translations which will commend to us what the word is saying. Oh, terrific. That's great. The, the principle I love that we, we want to keep going back to the words that God has inspired and sit humbly mm. and contritely and tremble before them Yes. Uh, rather than, in a sense, having them as plasticine in our hands to achieve the purposes we might want to achieve. We might want to preach a sermon today that hits this note because we think it's what the congregation needs to hear or we're excited about this subject. But if it's not what the words are really saying yes. in the text we're preaching... We're actually not being faithful to the verbally inspired words of, of Scripture. Which is a, a sort of secondary purpose behind um, writing the book in a way in saying to people, you can have confidence that the word, this, this being God's word, is the thing that God uses to, to prosecute his purposes, to transform people. So when you preach, where is your confidence going to be placed? In your skill as a preacher or your insightful analysis of contemporary culture or is the word where your confidence is based? You've put it really positively there, which is great. It's not like a criticism. You must stick to the words because mm. those are the correct words and you've done the wrong thing if you've deviated one inch from from these words, yeah, it's yeah. that these words are God's powerful words and if we have trust and confidence in them and preach them as he gives them to us, then that's what God uses to speak to people and to achieve his purposes. That's fantastic. Yes, and tampering with God's word or mm. um, sidelining God's word or people saying that God's word, we've moved beyond, as this Australian bishop said, we've moved beyond um what the Bible writers had to say on how to live as God's people. We know more than they do. Well, you start thinking, well, if if we somehow think that we are wiser than the Scripture, the real thing we're saying is that we're wiser than the one who gave us this Scripture. And if God is not ignorant and he's not deceitful and he's an effective communicator then I think we actually have every cause to be confident that this word is relevant now and we ought to swing onto it rather than sideline it. If you don't mind me saying so, Mark, I think that's why this is really an important book. It's a small book. It's not a huge book. It doesn't have the most exciting title in the history of the world. No, and you know, I had nothing to do with the title. <laughs> the Doctrine of Scripture and Introduction. I think, um, I think we could have come up with something a bit more punchy. Uh, I should have spoken to you, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it is a very important book for all these sorts of reasons. The, the Doctrine of Scripture is not this kind of academic subject. It's right at the heart of, our, of the current controversies that we're going through, especially in terms of whether we will trust and have confidence in what God says through the Bible about human sexuality, about mm -hmm. gender, about all kinds of subjects that are exercising us, or whether that confidence will be undermined and will give way and just go with the world on whatever it's trying to browbeat us into thinking. Yes, yeah, so, so the underlying question is, why should I trust this book? Because of whose word it is, 
and because of what uh, Jesus had to say about this word, and if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, then I need to take the word that he uh, respected and lived under as my guide in life. It's interesting what we're really talking about here is the truthfulness of Scripture, whether we can trust that what God says about us and the world in this book is really true about us and the world. And in the book, as you get into the later chapters, you dig into the attributes of Scripture, as it's traditionally called, the kind of what Scripture is really like. And truthfulness is one of the important ones you deal with. In each of those attributes, uh, what I want to communicate is that what you say about the Bible always has implications for, for your understanding of God. So if the Bible is not clear, then does that mean that God is not able to make it clear or did not want to make it clear? Is he trying to deceive us or confuse us? There are all sorts of implications for what you think about God. If God is a loving father who cares for his people and he's bringing all things to a completion that he has planned for us, which is wonderful beyond imagining, then we can be confident that he is a good communicator and we ought to trust that he is able to tell us what he wants us to know. When we get to truthfulness, if we say that the Bible is not truthful, that it just fudges on the facts or of makes history, mistakes or... or makes mistakes or is ignorant, then what are we saying about God? We're actually saying something about ourselves as well, that we, our canons of truthfulness are uh, the absolute canons of truthfulness. The categories that we use to define things are the only categories that are right. And that sort of, there are questions about that as well. But what are we saying about God? Is he deceitful? Is he ignorant? Is he just clumsy? Uh, what, what are we saying about God when we say the Bible's not true? If we trust that this God knows the end from the beginning, that he has our welfare always in mind, and that he is leading us to salvation. If those are the things that we believe about God, then that has implications for how we view the Bible. The, the movement is both directions. What you say about the Bible has implications for your understanding about God. What you believe about God has implications for what you say about his word. You spoke there about the clarity of Scripture, for example. Is God mm -hmm. capable of being clear and Within the book, it's one of the strong sections, I think, in that part of the book. It's almost as if you've done a fair bit of work on the clarity of Scripture. I have a little bit, yeah. Yes, you've uh, written another book on that whole subject. Which, which had a better title. What so, was the title of that book? Uh, a Clear and Present Word. Oh, I like that. Okay, so Chase It Up, that's a slightly more academic book than yeah, this one. Yeah, that's right, yes. Um, but a wonderful book about the struggle for um, affirming the clarity of Scripture. For Christians, though, as we think about God being clear, the Bible isn't always clear to us, though. And one of the threats or one of the challenges to the clarity of Scripture, in just in our own mind and experience, is the fact that we don't always find it clear and that we disagree about it so much. If the Bible's supposed to be so clear, why do Christians constantly disagree about the meaning of Scripture? Well, Scripture's not the only component in that, in, in that equation. We've got Scripture and us. And maybe that the problem's with us and not with Scripture. So when it comes to differences of opinion about the Bible, that doesn't mean necessarily the Bible is ambiguous or it doesn't mean that the Bible is unclear. Um, what it does mean is that we bring our own baggage to the Bible as we read it. And I have um, cultural blind spots and other things 
that I need people to challenge. It's one of the great things of engaging with people from different cultures as you read the Bible together. You can suddenly discover, hang on, my way of reading this is more being driven by my cultural predispositions rather than by what's actually being said on the page. Um, so I like the question I like uh, to uh, bring to students at college is um, what does the scripture say, which is Paul's question um, in Romans 4. You know, what does the scripture say? And ask that. Look down at the text and say, really does it say what you think it says? Or want it to say. Or want it to say. Because that, so I think the disagreement's got more to do with us and what we bring to the text. Often the confusion comes from us. We don't have the same uh, knowledge of the languages uh, that obviously the writers did. We have our own limited understanding and cultural situation and historical situation. I don't know all the history of um, the period in which Jesus walked on earth, uh, as well as those who living it. Uh, so there's differences there that they are my issues and they are overcome as we grow together in understanding the Bible um, in the end one of the important principles that come out of the Reformation is the idea that the Bible is its own interpreter what that means in practice is the more you read the Bible the more you'll understand the Bible it becomes clearer as you go along yeah that's right and even those parts which seem less clear, and the Bible itself kind of recognises that there are hard bits mm. in a way, doesn't it? Isn't there a verse where... Peter says, you know, there are those things in Paul that are difficult to understand. And then he goes on to say, which the wicked twist to their own disadvantage. So obviously it's possible to show that people are twisting it. So it's not impossible to understand, but it's difficult to understand. And clarity is not the same as simplicity. Some things are deeply profound and they're intricate and they take careful thought and you know, sustained thinking and some things are much easier to understand. The whole of the Bible isn't all uh, impenetrable. The whole of the Bible isn't all um, introductory either. So the writer to the Hebrews talks about um, the difficult, the advanced things about Melchizedek that he should be able to teach, teach about at this point, but those who are reading the book of Hebrews are not yet at the stage where they can understand those things. There are, there are different levels of complexity. Um, I think it was Augustine who, and, or Gregory the Great, one of the two, who said that the Bible is like um, a river, shallow enough for a child to play in, deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Um, there are, there's enough there to challenge the greatest minds. There's enough there to comfort the simplest heart. That's really helpful. Clarity is not the same thing as simplicity. Not everything in the Bible will be ABC, simple, introductory, but it will all be clear as we investigate it, as we read it and study it. Even the harder parts, uh, God can make that clear to us as we get closer and closer to understanding what's really going on in this text. And it's kind of not surprising in a way. You say the scripture reflects who God is, at one level that's God, right? God mm. is someone that a child can understand and put their trust in. God himself is so far beyond our comprehension in all his perfections that the most brilliant theologian can spend a lifetime contemplating and thinking and studying and still not scratch the surface. Yes, and, and, and there's room to grow in your understanding. So we grow to understand the Bible more. Um, I appreciate more about 
the cross of Jesus and what was involved than I did when I first became a Christian. I understood the cross. I put my trust in Jesus as the one who bore my sin. But to understand just the, the scale of what was happening when the eternal son bore my punishment and exhausted the penalty that I deserved, those sorts of things I've grown in understanding as I've read the scriptures. So the Bible is the kind of book that we don't ever stop studying as if we somehow mastered it. We keep on growing in our understanding of it. I might bounce off what you've just said to round off our conversation. You talked about growing in understanding of God and of the Bible. In your own Christian life now, Mark, what part does the Bible play in the way you relate to God? And how could you encourage our listeners in their relationship with God through the Bible? Well, um, like so many, I, I have a pattern of reading the Bible each day. Um, not necessarily. At the moment, I'm working my way through uh, Matthew's Gospel, um, a paragraph at a time. I've preached through Matthew's Gospel in the college chapel over the last couple of years, but this time I've gone back and just reading slowly a paragraph at a time and asking myself, uh, why does God want me to know this? What does this have to say uh, to the person who wants to live as a disciple of Jesus now. And I found that really helpful. Not, um, I've not been spending hours doing detailed Bible study, answering multiple questions, but just letting God address me through his word. And that I found is really, it's been a wonderfully encouraging thing to do in terms of just living out a, a daily life, knowing that the living God has things to say to me and is directing my life by his word. And there's many times where I've found myself challenged to rethink again what I've thought before or even things that I've done before to confess sin that I didn't recognise, that the word has sort of put its finger on, God's put his finger on and said, you know, actually that's something you need to repent of and something you need to change. So I find um, God's word as that way in which God addresses me encourages me in Christian discipleship to be something that's uh, something I value more and more. That's encouraging to hear. Uh, and let me encourage you, dear listener, to get a hold of this book. It's called The Doctrine of Scripture, an Introduction. It's published by Crossway. Uh, it's not a long book, and it's a very well and clearly written book. The clarity of Thompson is not quite up to the clarity of Scripture, perhaps, but it's certainly clear and really well written. You've done very well. Uh, and let me encourage you to get hold of a copy and study it and read it with friends, because... This is a hugely important topic, as I hope you've come to see in our conversation. Mark, thanks so much for uh, being with us today. And dear listener, as always, don't be afraid to write in and let me know and let us know your responses and questions about the Bible. I'm not sure whether we'll be going to be able to get Mark back to answer all your questions, but maybe Philip and I might try and answer your questions in the weeks to come about the Bible, about reading the Bible, about the doctrine of Scripture and how the Word of God uh, plays its part in our lives and in our churches today. Uh, we're going to close, as we always do, in prayer. Uh, maybe you didn't know this, Mark, but we always close our podcast in prayer. I'm going to ask you to close by praying for us and for our understanding of and response to God and his word. Very glad to do so. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you are concerned to communicate to your people, to guide and lead us as we seek to follow the Lord Jesus we thank you for your word, its truthfulness, its clarity, its effectiveness, that your word really does make a difference. And we pray, Father, that you might help us uh, to treat your word with that reverence and awe uh, that you speak about through the prophet Isaiah. 
Father, we pray that your word might nourish faith, uh, encourage obedience, clarify our hope, and that your word might have its way in each one of us. And we ask this for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.